Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm dandy. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends in person. In person. Unusual. Uh, first up in controversies and non-troversies, member Cat Person? The New Yorker short story that went hugely viral for some reason in 2017? I member Cat Person. The New Yorker short story that is arguably the first, quote, viral short story, end quote, whatever that means. I feel like Ambrose Bierce, uh, Ambrose Bierce might want to like, you know, have a little word with us about that, but whatever, we can, we'll, we'll just go with that. Um, I, uh, I, I, I find this story interesting because you know who else members Cat Person? It's Alexis Nowicki, a young woman writing in Slate, who said that the author of the story, Kristen Rupenian, apologies if I'm massacring that, uh, borrowed details from her life for the shockingly popular piece of short fiction. What sort of details? Well, little things like where she worked, the types of messages she exchanged with a former lover, other biographical factoids. Uh, the second half of the story story, which details a bad sexual encounter that, at the height of the Me Too movement, felt uncomfortably like sexual assault to a cohort of readers that was in the midst of re-examining things like consent, didn't bear much resemblance to Alexis's life. But it's the second part everyone remembers. Uh, and she was both surprised and flummoxed when people started texting her in a flood, asking if the story was about her. Long story short, yes, kinda. Um, uh, in the sense that Rupenian had, in fact, dated Nowicki's ex, a badly depicted ex, who we learned suffered from depression, uh, and who we also learned died suddenly in the last couple of years following publication of this story that is kind of nominally about him, sort of. Um, the specifics of this case are only interesting in the sense that this was a massively popular story that became a hit uh, and, a, and a real cultural phenomenon. It dominated the conversation for days on social media in a way that is uh, kind of hard to fathom for anyone who reads uh, short fiction at all, um, which is very few people, actually, it turns out. Uh, the author got an enormous book deal that turned into a book that no one really seemed to care for or buy, um, and Nowicki got to live with the doubt uh, and the insu insinuations, and the wrongly maligned man died suddenly again. Um, the 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 question before us is both deceptively simple and kind of deeply complex. Two part question, Alyssa. Two parts. Uh, what sort of responsibility does an author owe to a real person whose life experiences they are, let's say, borrowing from if we're going to be polite, or stealing if we're being impolite? Um, and does that responsibility grow or lessen depending on whether or not the person in question is famous or unknown? I, I mean, in other words, does, does Quentin Tarantino when he is making Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and writing a novelization about that and playing with real lives and real histories here, does he have... Uh, less responsibility when mucking about with the myths of the past than Rapinian did when she was mining uh, the background of someone she'd never actually even met for biographical details. Oh, boy. I mean, look, I think that um, artistry is often sort of inherently immoral, right? Um, it's, it's nice to think that writers and directors are sitting around and, you know, the muse reaches down from heaven, you know, Calliope appears and the story, you know, comes forth fully formed. But of course, people steal from their own lives and lives of others all of the time when they're creating fiction. Um, I think that, you know, the second part of your question is more interesting, um, just in the sense that, you know, someone like um, this young woman clearly found an avenue to 
process this experience and to ask Rupenian sort of what had happened and get an acknowledgement that this story was to a certain extent based on her life. But not everyone is going to have the either the fortitude to come forward in a way like this or the, you know, the writing and reportorial skills to, you know, pursue an author who has made use of their lives and specifically, you know, made use of her life to you know, kind of imply that she was victimized in a way that she didn't feel like she was, right? It's, you know, it's a tricky thing. And I mean, this is, you know, this has come up a lot, um, especially with relation to um, Quentin Tarantino's depiction of Bruce Lee, who in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, who of course is not, you know, alive to defend himself from the depiction Um from his depiction by Tarantino, but whose family nonetheless sort of has access to outlets like the Hollywood Reporter where they can, you know, argue and quibble with that definition, with that depiction. It's been the subject of a vigorous debate. Um, And so I don't, I mean, I don't know if the, I don't know how exactly you titrate the ethical standards. I guess if I were Christian Rupenian and got the short story accepted by The New Yorker, that might have been a moment for me to do a gut check and be like, are these details which are identifying, you know, clearly identifying um, something that I want to tweak a little bit? Are they the heart of the story? You know, I might have talked to my editor a little bit. Um, I mean, I feel like I do feel It's like- hard. I, I don't have a clear answer. Um it, it, it is hard. I, I agree it's hard. I mean, I, my, my take on this is that these these details may be identifying to like the handful of people who would know them, but they it's not like it's not like she was using names. It's not like yeah. I mean, it's, it's I mean, just certainly it hasn't prevented this young woman from, you know, going on with her life. It's I mean, the depiction and the depiction of her isn't in you know, sort of slanderously negative. It's just sort of victimizing it. It's taking something that was vulnerable and tricky in her life and recasting it in a way that's negative in a way that she didn't experience and doesn't remember. Yeah. Um, I mean, it, it made her doubt herself. That was an interesting yeah. part of the slate piece is that she was sitting there thinking, "Did was I actually victimized? Was I like too young and callow to understand that this was an abusive relationship as everybody who was reading it seems to yeah. be treating it as? Peter, that brings me to uh, the the broader point here, which is that the 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 only reason we're talking about this is because this thing was immensely popular for some reason. It was all over Twitter. There were takes upon takes. There you could there was a whole cottage industry of responses to to cat person. I mean, the real if if this had not been what it was in terms of the just in terms of the popularity of it, nobody would be we wouldn't be having this conversation. She probably never would have even read it. Let's be honest. I oh, think that's she, right. Yeah, she certainly never would have read it. It was written for an MFA class at yeah. the University of Michigan. And that's that's part of the backstory here and part of what makes this in some ways a little bit novel and a little bit complicated is that this was not uh, – it certainly wasn't expected to be, and I think arguably you could say it wasn't even intended to be a mass consumption product. It was intended to be a short story for an, an MFA class that again, then got submitted to The New Yorker. And look, I am a regular, like near-weekly reader of The New Yorker. I probably read it more than most subscribers. I'm a magazine journalist. I edit features uh, at, at the magazine I work at, and I love The New Yorker. I read maybe two short stories a year, and you know they publish one uh, every, yeah, that, at least every couple of weeks. That, right? fiction, um, that fiction issue always goes right in the trash. 
No, I, 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 I try to sit and read that one, but uh, often it like it sits at the top of the pile, and then I get to it maybe at the end of the summer, and I'm like, ah, I, I'm going to go back and read some comic books or something. No, um, but this is, the thing is, this is not unlike um, other instances of writers of and creators borrowing from real life, sometimes from, from people and scenarios that they know or had some experience with, and sometimes from some that they didn't have at all. So I don't know if you guys remember, um, about 15 years ago in, I think it was 2006, uh, Ian McKellen, and Ian McKellen, Ian McCowan, the novelist, yes. the novelist Ian not, McCowan. Not Gandalf. Not Gandalf, not Magneto. The right. novelist Ian McCowan, who is probably most famous for his uh, book Atonement, but has written a whole bunch of other movies, uh, books that have been adapted into movies. He's currently like working as a screenwriter. He was accused of plagiarism um, in a key scene in Atonement because he pretty clearly borrowed some details from a memoir of having worked as a London hospital nurse during World War II. And so he wasn't he wasn't just rewriting the same sentences, but there were a couple of paragraphs in which he picked out a couple of the same details that had appeared roughly in the same order in this memoir from the late 1970s. And it was like, this is plagiarism, man. This is, you've just stolen from this person's life. And, and his argument was, no, I haven't stolen from this person's life. What I've done is what good novelists who are trying to accurately capture the world, especially a history that they did not experience themselves, they are drawing from real life experiences. And, you know, uh, around the same time, actually, there was a I'm not going to say I'm not going to uh, state any names here, but there were there were some young Brooklyn novelists associated with a uh, hip Brooklyn literary magazine who were all publishing their first early novels, and like the word around the East Coast sort of young literary scenes at the time was if you actually knew the people, the writers, and their social scenes in question, virtually all of the characters in these books were very clearly based on, but, like, that, some friend or another. That, and this is, this happens, is the plus same. One. <laughs> that happens all the time, though. Right. This is not, yeah. this is not, like, this I mean, is, like, This is a different circumstance because this was borrowing from someone who she did not know personally. They'd never met, right? Mm -hmm. They never spoke. They didn't you know, know each other that way, but had an indirect connection to. And I think that makes it, it makes it a little more of an interesting question, but at the same time, I, I just feel like this is, this is both worth talking about as a way of exploring what art does. And also, I, I don't feel like I can cast a negative judgment here. Like, I think that this was inappropriate. I think perhaps you should, in the future, you know, if you are a writer, having looked at this experience, think about disguising some of the specific details if you are, you know, uh, if you are basing a character on a real person um, a little bit more, right? You don't have to choose the specific movie theater and the specific school and that sort of thing uh, in the way that Rupenian did. But I don't think this is illegitimate at all. I think this is absolutely what art does and how artists work. And they're you are always drawing from your own experience, from experiences you have heard about, and then you're and then you're twisting them, you're synthesizing them, you are adding and subtracting and making them and making them unreal. And that's you know sort of what that's all. That's the other thing that sort of stands out about this is, on the one hand, there's a bunch of details here that that mimic real life, but on the other hand, there's also just a lot that was that was clearly just made up and was was just fiction. Yeah. Now maybe it was. Maybe it was based on some other experience that the author either had herself or knew about. Um, we don't know. But this was not just a sort of, this was not just 
a rewriting of a real person's life kind of, you know, year by year, note for note, detail by detail in fictional form. And as a result, I don't think that there's anything really deeply illegitimate about it, though I I do think it's worth talking about. Well, and it can be something that caused harm without there being a general principle that you can extract from it, right? I mean, and I will say, I think it's to Repenian's credit that she clearly had a series of conversations with this woman about what had happened, some of which, you know, were not on the record, but some of which, you know, she's quoted pretty substantially in the Slate piece. Um, She does not appear to be trying to, you know, sort of, hide the fact that this story may have had an impact on a couple people who are real human beings. Um, And so, you know, I don't, it doesn't seem to me like she's acted sort of unethically in the aftermath, in the aftermath. She may not, you know, by the standards of a profession that I think involves some sort of, you know, kind of occupying a separate ethical sphere have behaved unethically at all. Um, but it can just be a situation that is uncomfortable and that involves people having suffered and experienced pain that's not sort of widespread and reputational, but still is emotionally wounding. I mean, I think broadly I would say that as people get more powerful and famous, I actually think they should have less control over their images. Um, I mean, one of the things that has surrounded this controversial authorized biography of Philip Roth is that Roth was clearly looking for a collaborator who would help him push back against his ex-wife Claire Bloom's account of their marriage. Um, You know, and he clearly picked someone who was going to sympathize with sort of Roth's patterns of relationships with women. um, And that played out in a way that I'm sure Roth could not have anticipated um, either before his death or from beyond the grave. But it's a good reminder that, you know, people in power can and who have large platforms can use claims to deserve control over their images and legacy as a way to sort of avoid accountability as well. Alyssa, um, uh, I have a question for you. Did you read the, the novel Asymmetry uh, by Lisa Halliday? I did not. So it's great. Um, right. It's it's a really smart novel, and it is, in fact, uh, the first half of it in particular is about a young woman who becomes involved with a writer, uh, a famous older writer, who is very clearly modeled on Philip Roth, who, in fact, uh, Lisa Halliday had had some connection to, and I, I don't remember the details, so I don't want to characterize anything other than had some connection to uh, here. Um, but has mo- like she modeled the first half of her breakout, uh, widely uh, reviewed, well reviewed novel on uh, a relationship of some sort that she had in the real world with uh, with an author. And so, you know, I think this is this is just sort of something that get that happens in fiction, and that we we I think we do need to. Again, we can discuss it and we can talk about what's real and what's not, and it's worth sort of teasing out these differences. But I think we we have to accept that this is part of the this is part of how art works. I also think p- complaints about um, how artists are repurposing, reimagining, rethinking real life people in their work. Um, are are not exactly new. And while this isn't like a super old example, you the, the whole plot of Deconstructing Harry, the Woody Allen movie from the late 1990s, which I don't know if you guys have seen, the whole plot of that is that 
the people in his real life friends of it's so it's about uh, it's about basically a guy who's Woody Allen, right? Except he's and okay. the people who in, and the people who are his friends in real life are just like constantly coming up to him and complaining about how he's portrayed them in his fiction because of course Woody Allen had spent years right. writing short stories and making movies right. about uh, that were quite closely based on people he knew in real yeah. life. I, I, there is a slight terminology problem here. I know people have described this as plagiarism. You can't really plagiarize no. somebody's life. That's that's like, plagiarism is a crime that has two victims, right? You The first victim is the person you're stealing text or whatever from, and the second is the audience that you're depriving of what they think to be your original thoughts. And I, I just, this is such a weird story that I, I, have, su- I have a very hard time getting upset about what the original author did on behalf of the uh, the woman in question here. But I do think, I mean, I would say that the guy who, again, has died very suddenly in, you know... A way that's after, not specified. In a way that is not specified in the story, but comes after it was specified that he suffered from depression. Like, I find... And lost his job. And lost his job during COVID. And, like, what I... Like, the, I, I, I do think that there is a victim here, and it might be him. Yep. Like, I, I don't think that's unreasonable to think, and we're never going to get that guy's side of the story. We're not going to get that side of the story, and we may not ever really find out what happened there at all. Um, there is, so this is why I say that what I keep just coming back to, we should we should be able to talk about these things. Again, I'm, I think this is basically a legitimate way for art to work, but we should be able to talk about them in part because a big part of what this follow-up story does several years later is it in some ways redeems this guy? Yep. Right. Yep. And and it it gives right because the story is about how on reflection, you know, yes, she did question. Maybe I was victimized. Maybe I didn't understand what was happening. But the story is in many ways about how this guy who was uh, at the center of this uh, young woman's life, and then also at the center of this story, how he wasn't he wasn't the misogynist monster that he is portrayed to be in the short story. And he was someone who was not that, he just wasn't that person. Now, he might not have been perfect, and he might not have always, uh, you know, b- uh, been exactly, you know, the uh, the the perfect person that, that somebody might want him to be. But he was, by her account, really quite gentle, really quite nice and quite thoughtful, uh, both with her and with other people. And so there is, there is a kind of redemption in this story, and I'm glad that it got published, um, and I'm glad that we got to hear this version of it. Yeah. Um, Peter, you mentioned Deconstructing Harry. There is a wonderful and very strange movie called Stranger Than Fiction where Emma Thompson plays a novelist who discovers that the character in her latest book is a real person and she is, you know, determining the course of his life. And this is becomes a problem for her because in her original conception of the novel, the character has to die. And she ultimately is persuaded not to kill him. And the movie concludes that the book is less good as a result. Um, And it's a very funny meditation on, you know, maybe being a good person is not good for great art. Um, (laughs) And so it's, I mean, it's incredibly strange. It's really sweet. um, And Spoon did all the music for it. So highly, if if you come away from the revelation uh, that, the cat person story is not all it cracked up to be and go out and watch Stranger Than Fiction, you will probably be better off than you would be by miring yourself in the details of this debate. Strong agree. It's a great piece of Charlie Kaufman-esque metafiction. Yes. Uh, If you 
let's, Larry, let's let's move on. We've we've talked about this for many. We've talked about once again the cat person cycle has begun again. We cannot <laughs> we cannot stop talking about it. Uh, we live in the we're age all of, cat people but let's, now. Let's just put a, let's put a let's put a pin in it. Uh, what do we think? Is it a controversy or a non-controversy? Uh, to borrow details from someone's life for a work of fiction, Alyssa. It's a non-controversy. Peter. I think in general it's not a controversy. I think in this specific case, it arises to the level of something like a controversy. I think it's basically a non-controversy, um, but I do I do wish we could all be a little bit more mature when we're kind of discussing uh, how these plot mechanics play out and and stop trying to make everything that happens in every piece of art a statement on what is happening in the world. Because again, one of the things about this is that it got wrapped up in the whole Me Too discourse in a way that was bad for the short story and bad for everybody involved, you know, either the, the author or tangentially of, uh, involved I mean, it was good it. for the author of the story whose well, work she, got she, read she, and who got she, a ridiculously got, got a oversized book deal. Yeah. Book deal uh, like high six figures. I forget what the actual number I was. I have it heard was low seven figures, yeah. but I haven't I seen the, official reporting. I think the general reporting is seven figures, but yeah. Yeah, crazy amount of money. All right, uh, if you enjoy this show where we don't steal people's lives and make them our own and, you know, whatever, uh, uh, and who doesn't enjoy the show, it's great, uh, make sure to head over to atma.thebulwark.com where we'll have a special bonus members-only episode about uh, the MCU, the Marvel Cinematic Universe's villain problem and ours. Um, and now on to the main event, Black Widow. Uh, it's been nearly two years since the Marvel Cinematic Universe has graced theater screens and the return of Scarlett Johansson's Russian-born Avenger couldn't come at a better time for theaters trying to get back on their feet. Uh, we're taping this on a Friday in person uh, because I happen to be in Washington, D.C. this weekend, getting the band back together one night only. Uh, so I don't have any concrete numbers uh, in terms of box office uh, except for Thursday Night Sneaks, which I think was 13 million. 13.2. Yeah, 13.2 million. Good numbers um, for Thursday Night Sneaks. Which are very good numbers. It's much higher than F9 did. We'll, we'll see if it breaks 100 million uh, for the weekend. Um, but anecdotally, I will say that I, I do think that this movie is going to smash pandemic records, uh, which isn't saying a ton, I guess, but we're back. Movies are back, baby. Theaters are back. Um, and when I say theaters are back, uh, what I mean is they are once again projecting the serialized TV-like adventures of the Avengers uh, and their friends onto a big screen in order to entice us to watch more adventures with the Avengers and their friends, possibly on the small screen, who knows. Uh, you probably don't have to have seen every single snippet of the MCU to make sense of this movie, but you certainly won't understand everything that happens if you haven't. Um, so what does happen? Well, we get a bit of backstory on Natasha. Turns out she lived in Ohio for a while as part of a The, the Americans, the FX show, uh, <laughs> yes. style plot to infiltrate America on its home soil and steal our technological secrets. Uh, and we we meet the family with which she lived, her little sister Elena, played by Florence Pugh, father Alexi, a.k.a. the Red Guardian, played by David Harbour, and mother Melina, played by Rachel Weisz. Uh, like F9 and The Tomorrow War, Black Widow is all about family, both in terms of the thematic resonance. Uh, is a family less of a family because it's forced together by accident and circumstances uh, rather than created by blood? Um, uh, and because all the best stuff in this movie is the jokey-jokey back and forth between the lovingly bitchy sisters and the clueless but well-meaning dad and the mom who's kind of a space case. All the worst stuff is kind of everything else. Uh, the plot revolves around a modestly boring bit of mind control, something or other, from a Russian mastermind um, who has placed Black Widow's 
in positions of power all over the world to do something, start wars, manipulate the stock market, markets. Nobody, it's not entirely clear how any of these Villain things happen. nonsense. Just nonsense. Uh, Ray Winstone is horribly miscast as this Russian bureaucrat because he sounds like something out of Layer Cake. He's like, he's like, he can't, he can't submerge the British accent uh, enough. And he's just kind of like big and fat and greasy. He like looks like a British gangster doing a bad Russian accent. Um, he's the mastermind uh, of the, the plot. But the, the big fights in this movie revolve around a character called Taskmaster, who mimics uh, the moves performed by Natasha's peers in The Avengers, which gives the whole thing the feeling that it's not quite a knockoff, but not quite original either. I don't know, guys. The movie is fine. It's deeply fine. This is a very fine movie. It's uh, mid-tier Marvel. Um, is that what the ne- theaters need right now? Is that all they need? Just something that is kind of fine? Well, we haven't seen the box office numbers yet, so we don't know if this is what Seems theaters like need the answer is or yes. not. Um, yeah, I mean, to me, this sort of raises questions about whether uh, this is what the Marvel Cinematic Universe actually needs right now and what role the big tent poles will have going forward now that Marvel has spread its wings onto television with um, with a bunch of streaming series. And I think those streaming series have not been entirely successful, but I think WandaVision and Loki in particular are much better products than... You mean successful in terms of their artistic vision? Yeah. As yeah, opposed no, to... The, they've, they have done they've very well been watched for, by lots of people. They have done very, very well for Disney. Um, even even Captain... Uh, uh, this Captain Snowman and the, uh, the bird winter. guy. Or whatever. The Falcon um, and the Winter Soldier. That's it. Um, even that has uh, did quite well ratings wise. And Birdman and Steel Arm. Yeah, exactly. That's that's the show. Um, I watched all all the episodes. We did an episode about it here because we're we're all about the follow on content, um, right? So to me. After watching all of those, and in particular in the middle of watching Loki, which I think is going really, really well and is uh, maybe my favorite Marvel thing ever, um, maybe, uh, I watched Black Widow and thought, man, this is fine. I agreed. It's even a little better than usual in terms of the action scenes, I think. Just what? N- so the, not, not so much in terms in, of the in terms of the. Overall, Marvel, or in terms of Marvel, just general. No, it's it's it is notably, I think, more distinctive looking, uh, especially when we get to the action sequences, than most Marvel films are. It looks different. It it is there's a different palette. There's a sort of grittiness to it. There's a focus on geography and on some bigger shots uh, that is again maybe not completely unheard of for Marvel, but I would put it in the top tier in that way. And yet, this whole thing just felt so inessential to me. It really just felt like, well, I guess I went to the theater, but gosh, I could have watched this at home. And and in fact, you can watch this at home for thirty yes. bucks. Now, I guess that's not going to be true with the next uh, couple of Marvel films. That well, they are haven't. Out this they year. have not said for sure yet. They, not, I'm they've... pretty sure they've said that Shang Chi is is th- in theaters only. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, that sort of thing could always change, especially if there are say rollbacks in theater capacity limits in big cities, as there might well be um, later in the year. Uh, or at least as you can imagine happening. So to me, this was, I, I agree that it's that it's fine. I agree that it's sort of unremarkable. Um, I'm disappointed by that. I think Black Widow's a great character and Scarlett Johansson's a, a great actress and she deserved a bigger and better showcase than this. But the other thing is that this movie just came four years too late, right? It's set four or five years ago, kind of in a it's, gap in the right, Marvel it's, it's timeline. It's set between Captain America Civil War and Avengers Infinity War. And it is, it's a movie that, 
is it's not an origin story, but it is a backfill of some inform- of some stuff we already kind of knew about after the main character has died, has died a pretty definitive death. And so it and remains really... dead at the end of this movie. Yes. There's a shot right. and, at her and graveyard reads, and, and at the, her gravesite. The, the, the post-credit scene is that she's dead and oh, but there's a new Black Widow because of course you always have to have something else. You but wouldn't... But no, this movie just sort of, it doesn't really give us all that much to to learn about about Natasha Romanoff. It doesn't really add a whole lot to her character. And uh, and it as a result, it's and it also doesn't go anywhere. It has no nowhere else to go except, oh wait, this was a backdoor pilot for the Florence Pugh show. Um, Alyssa, I'm actually really curious what you thought of it, not just because for all the this is fine action scene reasons, but because to me, it seemed like there was a really kind of ham-handed effort to make this about like, this is about freeing the girls and like having their, like this is about like letting them choose their own path in a way that felt sort of like the Marvel felt like they had to, if they were going to make a female-fronted action film, they had to do that. But also, like, they didn't really have any ideas other than, like, mind control by the weird gangster pimp. Yeah. Um, So I will freely admit that some of my reaction to this movie may have been seeing it in a theater with no capacity limits that was 95% sold out on opening night. And that was just awesome. Um, I have been back to the movies a fair bit since theaters opened in the D.C. area, but I have not been to a nighttime screening where I walked in and the theater was crowded, where there were people, the line to get in stretched out onto the seat, where onto the street, where people were coming in throughout an entire 20 minutes you know, of trailers because the line for concessions was so long. And being in the midst of that buzz, I think definitely influenced the way that I saw that movie. I saw the movie. Um, I think I liked this a lot more than you guys did. Um, not necessarily because, you know, any of the action stuff and listeners to this podcast will know that I have a long time and very deep-seated quibbles with the action sequences in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. But I found it really interesting as a movie about living with your origin story. Um And what I mean by that is specifically, like, most origin stories are kind of fun or, you know, ultimately sort of pat, right? You know, I mean, Iron Man, yeah, he has, like, the piece of metal that's constantly headed towards his heart. But, like, he's turned the trauma into being super cool, right? I mean, Peter Parker gets bit by— He was already cool. (sighs) Now he's just cool and a robot. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's everything Elon Musk hopes to be. Um, you know, Peter Parker gets bit by a spider, right? Like the consequences of that are interesting and like there's the Uncle Ben stuff, but you know, the actual like getting bit by a spider is not a terribly traumatic event. Um, this is a story about, you know, Black Widow's experience, the process that turned Black Widow into a superhero, was really traumatic and screwed up and has actually been fairly effectively woven into her story throughout the Marvel movies as traumatic and screwed up. I mean, there, you know, there is a conversation between her and Bruce Banner when they're discussing when, you know, whether they're going to get together where, you know, he describes himself as a monster and she talks about what it's like living as the victim of a forced hysterectomy, right? Which is something that comes up again in what's actually like a both very sort of graphic and funny scene in the movie. Did Um, that play well in a packed theater? Yeah, it did. Because at the screening I was at, 
it was really sort of like, oh, they're trying to get me to laugh at that. It didn't work. But it was funny. I mean, I mean yeah. it's, it's no, well I, done. I'm saying that the, at the screening I was at, yeah. people didn't respond to it. Was it's it, was a, it yeah. a critics-only screening? I'm not sure I could characterize it one way or the other. I, it, there, it was, there were many critics there. Okay. Um, yeah, it played well in the, se- in the theater I was in. And actually, like, it felt like a sort of ballsy moment to me. It's almost like a bit of sort of girl-style gross-out, like, overly detailed bodily humor. Well, and it's also it's also repurposing and reappropriating a thing that has been condemned as problematic for the last, you know, five years or whatever, since whenever Age of Ultron came out. You know, they were yeah. like, you know, that was that was that scene where she's, she, you know, she's talking about the hysterectomy, which I I found fairly moving. In yeah, the as did I. Of I, the film. I have never quite understood the but, backlash to but that. But there was a there was a feminist backlash against it that was like, how dare you reduce her to her ability to produce children? Like, well, I mean, that's a, I mean, that's part of I, like, and it's something she. I mean, like, people are allowed to have strong feelings about not being fertile, like. Yeah. Forced sterilization is pretty screwed up. California yeah. is bad. You know, it's a bad thing. Um, but it's, I mean, it is a it is a movie about what it means when being a powerful woman is defined by men. Um, and men who define that in a sort of abusive and ugly way, right? I mean, you have this, you know, I don't I don't think the Dracov stuff is done particularly well, but there is this sort of blunt line where he says, you know, I make use of the world sort of the only natural resource the world has too much of, little girls, right? And he has set this definition of female and power and perfection that is this fusion of hyperfemininity and hypermasculinity, right? I mean, the widows are, you know, they're multiracial, but they are all, you know, tiny and slim and have long hair and, you know, move in this sort of graceful balletic way. We see these training sequences that are effectively dance routines. Um, And what they use that for is to, like, be really good at shooting and stabbing and strangling people. Possibly Um, tanking stock markets and blowing up oil fields. Yeah. And I mean, there's, but there's also this sort of funny scene where uh, Natasha and Yelena are reunited with Alexei and he's talking about how the things that are the source of their profound trauma are what make him really proud, right? It's like, you're the greatest all-time child assassin. You've both killed so many people. I'm so (laughs) proud of you. And it's like, it's this kind of great twisted take on like the helicopter parent, but it's also so very much like, you know, daddy's little girl has to be just like daddy. Um, you know, you have this Molina character who is a, is a participant. She's a collaborator in this, you know, twisted definition of what makes the perfect woman. She's the person, you know, providing the mind control technology. And that all of this is happening in a movie that's part of a franchise where, among other things, like female power has been... You know, the definition of female power has been overseen by a bunch of men. It's like kind of an interesting meta thing. I mean, you know, this is not a feminist tract. It does not end with like all of the widows going out, like forswearing militarism and, you know, building a feminist compound and like rethinking how I mean, they want so to live their lives. mean, so far as we know. Yes, so far. Maybe as that's we know. Black Widow too. I would 100% watch um, a Black Widow 2 movie that's like, 
the like the widows like reform as the society for cutting up men or as like as the lesbian avengers and like you know retreat to vermont and have a farm this movie would make sonny kill himself so i will not root for it under those circumstances but i mean in musical form yeah and look, ideally my, my expectations for marvel movies are really low at this point i think my expectations for marvel entertainment are actually possibly lower than the ones that you guys have and so i am saying i enjoyed it because the bar that it has to vault over was so low. But it's sort of the first time in a long time that I felt like anything interesting at all intellectually was happening in any of these movies and happening in a way that's like played out very effectively among the characters. Do you do you think that it's uh, so spoilers here? If you if you haven't watched it yet, you can turn it off. Don't don't listen to this. But the uh, d- don't you think it's kind of a cop out then at the end to have her absolve herself of her own sins oh, 100%. by by freeing the taskmaster who is we learn is actually the crippled daughter of uh, the the Russian you know bureaucrat who uh, the Black Widow was supposed to kill. She was intended to be collateral damage in a strike that killed him. And uh, instead, she turns out she's alive, and, and and Natasha Romanoff frees her and says, "You're you're okay now." Um, I mean, interestingly though, like she's not necessarily right. It's like the other women who are like take her, promise to heal her, like you know. I mean, when Drakov's daughter first comes up in the franchise, you know, it's Loki invoking this as like sort of Black Widow's most monstrous act. And it's true that like she gets the chip out of this girl's head, but she's, but you know, she, this she very, put it da- there. yeah, she put it there, but also this very damaged person is going to have to figure out a life for herself. Like Natasha can't do that for her. There's sort of a moral limit there. Um, and I mean, she, apologizes, but that's not necessarily the same as her necessarily receiving a full absolution. I mean, and look, the movie's always going to cop out, right? Like, you, there's only so much you can do and say when there is a franchise to feed. Right. Um, and a franchise that, you know, is built in part on having, you know, female characters who <laughs> act a lot like men. I mean, one of the reasons that WandaVision is interesting is that it is a story about a woman who responds to trauma not by sort of digging in and, you know, pursuing a, you know, empowering, action-filled vision of revitalization, but rather by retreating into a domestic fantasy um, and, you know, longing for a, you know, seeing a sort of feminized version of normality with, like, a husband and kids as the thing that's actually like really healing and fulfilling. Um, and that's an idea that's actually sort of more challenging to the core premise of the Marvel Cinematic Universe than anything that ultimately yeah. happens in Black Widow, right? Like the, you know, it's it's Marvel's version of the opt-out revolution. Yeah. <laughs> Did it seem to you guys like that whole subplot and storyline with Drakov's daughter, which again has been referenced somewhat before, but um, is is in many ways kind of the key to the movie, was weirdly underplayed, right? Like, we sort of see that moment only in this sort of little flashback somewhere, I don't know, a third of the way through the movie. And I kept, as I walked out of this film, I kept thinking, that's that's the moment that this movie should have been built around and grounded in, rather than just sort of like sketched as like a thing that they didn't quite want to. It almost felt like Marvel was scared of engaging with that moment because it makes 
Black Widow uh, into something more monstrous than Marvel really wants to accept. Um, and, a, and it seems like, especially given that Black Widow is, or, or the, the, the Natasha Romanoff version of Black Widow is dead and gone and out of the universe, you could have made a movie that started with that, that didn't start in Ohio. But that started as the prologue, as that, as this sort of formative moment in which she makes a choice to do something awful because that's what she needs to do to get the job done. And then she has to live with it for the rest of her life. And it felt like the movie wanted to sort of gesture to that, to this thing where she made a choice that was difficult, hard, and maybe even awful and, and, and monstrous. But it didn't really want us to dwell on it too much. And so it just sort of touched on it very briefly and then went and then allowed her to like free the girls and like sort of in, and absolve herself and all this. And there's a much more interesting idea, I think, hiding in this exact story and in this movie and in not in this screenplay, but in this story structure, which is the story of someone who we have seen as a superhero for the last decade or so, who is in some ways actually not the good, the paragon of goodness that all of Marvel's heroes in some ways need to be for the brand. Well, I think this actually gets at what we're going to discuss in our subscriber episode, which is that Marvel has a real problem making anyone, even its ostensible villains, too bad. Um, it, or interestingly bad. Yeah. I mean, I do think that as soon as they're interestingly bad, they become heroes. Yeah. And I, we've seen that with, I mean, you know, we'll get into this a little bit more later, but with Loki and yeah. with Baron Zemo now. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, though, I mean, I agree with what you're saying about that, not least because it would have deepened our sense of Dracov's total monstrosity, right? I mean, there is this, there's something that, you know, this is something that Black Widow is truly carrying around in her conscience as a monstrous act. And yet, you know, he is sort of delighted that his daughter has been reduced to something he can experiment on um, and who he can really fully, you know, mold into his Yeah, it's, it's dark stuff. Yeah. And the movie wants to both gesture at that darkness and also not have us think about it too much or have it last in any way. Yeah. Definitely blinks. All right, so what do we think? Uh, thumbs up or thumbs down on Black Widow? Alyssa? Thumbs up. Peter? Thumbs perfectly in the middle. Yeah, I mean, it's thumbs up for me, but it's one of these like, yeah, this is like a two and a half star out of four star movie. If I, I really have to pick th up or down, I'll go with up because I'm glad I saw it and I, I don't feel like my time was wasted. It's better than Captain Marvel. It's not as good as either Ant-Man film. Yeah. I will say that uh, one, one, just briefly as we exit here, I, I was surprised by how subdued my audience was. I guess in comparison to yours, Alyssa, because my audience like kind of shuffled out of the theater. Like there was some laughing and, you know, in the funny moments, but like my audience kind of shuffled out of the theater quietly. Like, yep, we're back. We're back to this. It was, it was almost like dystopian. <laughs> yeah, mine, well, yeah, mine was very, mine was very locked in. Um, although it did react. I mean, there were, you know, people did react, but there was like an ovation after people like the audience clapped and cheered. Like none of that for none of that. Sonny's, Sonny's audience, just the people in my, Texas my don't love like, Julia Lewis-Dreyfus. That's fine. Yeah. Uh, we got this stuff again. We're back. We're back to it. All right. Uh, that is it for today's show. If you loved it, make sure to check out our members-only bonus episode uh, on the best uh, or worst or really what's wrong with the Marvel Cinematic Universe's villains and kind of how other universes do it a little bit better. 
Um, make sure to tell your friends. A strong recommendation from a friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I will convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. 